Hi friends, welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan, and this is our weekly virtual church classroom, where this time we are continuing our study of the Christian Believer course, a course written originally by J. Ellsworth Callis and published by the Cokesbury uh, Publishing House. It is our hybrid version of it, where I basically try to hit some high points with you while you drive or work or do something else listening to the podcast. That's the idea anyway. It is our vision that each week we would draw nearer to God in this deliberate pursuit of God's heart and mind, and in the same way, changing our heart and mind so that it's entirely in sync with God's heart and mind. I know it sounds a little redundant, but that's the whole point, really, to be so completely given over to the heart and mind of God that it is the entire focus of our hearts and minds. That's the gist of it, and we look forward each week to being together in this virtual classroom. This week we want to uh, pause before we begin to uh, take time to share a couple of thoughts and have a prayer, and then we'll carry on with our study. I'd like for you to think about that whole concept of knowing God with heart and mind for just a minute. If we were to really study the doctrines of the church and to understand the people who gave them to us, we would find that they were people throughout the last 2,000 years who have eagerly sought to know God with heart and mind. In fact, we could take it even further than that. We could say that there are those who have been seeking God for some five or 6,000 years of recorded biblical history. And the reality is always the same. What they find that turns out to be true ends up outlasting them. And that's the way it is with truth, isn't it? There are people who would argue today that there are no absolute truths, but I would disagree on the basis of the fact that absolute truth has a way of consistently proving itself over and over again. For example, it's an absolute truth that if you climb up onto the roof of your house and step off of its highest peak and think you're going to fly, you're probably mistaken. In fact, The absolute truth is, is without some sort of intervention, when you step off the roof of your house, you will fall immediately to the ground. I have shared with people in a group gathering recently that I've been bungee jumping. It's been many years ago, and they asked me how I liked it, and the answer is I didn't like it very much at all, to be honest with you. I did it for uh, the sake of a friend who was managing a a uh, short entrepreneurial venture into a bungee jumping enterprise. And uh, I did it to help him to succeed in his uh, efforts. And as the person who was responsible for the safety of the rigging, it was my job to jump first to prove that I was satisfied that everything was safe. So I would ride this man lift 180 feet into the air, being lifted by an industrial crane. And at the top of that 
height, I would then leap out of the basket, hurtle towards the ground, and then hope that our big giant rubber band would extend itself to a certain length and then softly hurl me back up for a couple of flip-flops until I was lowered to the ground. That was the idea. And if you ask me how I feel about it, what I will tell you is, is I felt like I was falling to my death. That's how I felt. I wasn't terrified by it. I wouldn't have done it if I was so scared. But what I do know is that when I was falling from the basket towards the ground, I was conscious of the fact that I could feel the friction of the air. I could feel my skin heating up just slightly as I accelerated towards the ground. And if not for our big bungee cord, our giant rubber, giant rubber band, uh, I would have just kept accelerating until I came to a sudden stop, at which case my body would have suffered from traumatic uh, injury, and that would have been the end. So that's an absolute truth. They exist. And there are many such absolute truths. And some of the truths in the Bible that are the most absolute have to do with the nature of God. God is the same yesterday, today, and always. And so when we become devoted with our heart and mind to understanding God's heart and mind, it begins to change us. We begin to understand that these truths we are exploring in this study of the doctrinal standards presented primarily in the Nicene Creed, which you can look up by clicking the link in the description box below. And uh, by learning these doctrines and really in incorporating them into our thinking about our Christian living, certain things change when we begin to really see the doctrinal truths of our relationship with God move from our head to our heart, we begin to praise God, and praise becomes more important on Sunday morning than what we get out of it. And when we say the creeds of the, of the church, like the Nicene Creed with conviction, it, it's a statement of almost an oath. It's a, it's a promise to God that these are truths you believe, rather than just the sort of rote exercise that we do in church each week. When we pause when starting to discount another person, because we remember that each human being carries the image and likeness of God, we know that we have moved from head to heart in these beliefs. When we look around us and declare that everything in God's creation, rocks and stars and birds and trees and humans and dandelions and waterfalls and whales, are all praising God, we begin to understand that our love for God is deep in our hearts. When we watch the baptism of a baby, or if you're fortunate enough to witness the birth of a baby, you begin to see the very hand of God creating what was nothing and turning it into something. When we sing the hymns, and we realize that the words we're singing are confessions of faith. We sing them with more joy. When the words we say on Sunday have everything to do with the words we say and the things we do on Monday through Saturday, we know that our heart 
and mind are in sync with God's heart and mind when this life of ours is driven by the very Spirit of God, that we breathe Holy Spirit in and self out. When we eat and drink, we remember, as Jesus told us, that every time we eat and drink, we should remember the salvation that was purchased with his body that he called the bread and his blood he called the wine. We know that our hearts and minds are in sync with God's heart and mind when at the center of our sorrow, even as we face death, we experience peace and assurance because of God's promises and our hope for things to come. When our whole world falls apart and we sense God's presence with us, even in the midst of the rubble, we know that we have moved from head to heart in our relationship with God. When we open our Bible alone or with others, and we know that we will meet God there, our hearts and minds are in sync with God's heart and mind. Let us pray. Holy God, thank you for this opportunity to serve you again as we serve you like children who seek to know their Father, to reach out to our Heavenly Father with open eyes and minds and hearts and and to say, Father, tell us more. Tell us more. Oh God, we know that you love us like a parent, but better than any parent who ever walked this earth and more completely, so much so that you gave us your son in a way of sacrificial love that would lead to our sonship and daughtership so that we, like him, Jesus, would be a part of your kingdom, to be a member of your household, to call you father because Jesus said we could, because you want us to think of you that way. Oh God, we know that father is a patriarchal term of people, But it's what Jesus called you, and for now, that's good enough for us. But we also know that you're more than a man, that you are an entirely separate and altogether different being, and yet you made us in your image, so we know that you're not that far apart. And we love you because you have reached across the void to us invited us to come and love to be with you always not just on earth but in all of eternity even joining you in your place and space and time oh god help us now as we come together to study your word to actually study your name help us as we seek you with all our heart and mind we pray amen lesson is giving God a name. Now, to some people in the world, maybe even you, the whole idea of giving God a name seems pretty absurd. When Moses asked 
God exactly who he should say he's been talking to. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Now that's fascinating because it means more than the substance of the words. Now let's just talk about that for a second. You know, I can't talk with you for long without asking your name. This is an act of respect, but it's also essential to me. I need something specific to relate to you. Your name provides that, and your name may even change as I get to know you better. And so we have this formal relationship that is built around a proper name, and yet in time we may call each other by loving nicknames. And so if we accept that God exists, we have to establish a relationship, and that requires a name. So what should we call God? What does God's name have to do with how we understand God and how we relate to God? And as we find a name, we seek still further to know the authorities, or attributes rather, of God, in part so we can address God more adequately and fulfillingly. So now, as you reflect on those readings that you were assigned last week, as you looked at each of those passages, you begin to realize that the Bible gives us multiple names and attributes for God, and that the danger we run into that's called heresy comes from zeroing in too heavily on one aspect of God's nature at the expense of other aspects of God's nature. In church and religion, heresy is a half-truth. It's a partial truth. It's, it happens when we get too fixated on making God or some biblical truth com- conform to our needs or expectations. And so the readings that you've experienced this week were designed to give you an idea of the various aspects of God's nature. For example, when you read Exodus and Deuteronomy, you got a very clear picture of God as the one and only, the one who is Lord over all. That is to say that that when God establishes God's name with Moses, for example, it is entirely within the context of the dominant culture of that day, which is Egypt, which is a culture of multiple gods. And so God says quite plainly to Moses, who was raised in Egypt, I am God. There are no other gods. Then when you read Job, you learn more about God's creative nature, and you begin to see God as the only one who has the power to do these marvelous and magnificent, majestic things. When you read Psalm 89, you heard of God's faithfulness, and you got a sense from that psalm that God is always faithful, and that God alone can promise to be faithful in all things and not fail. You know, when we talk about marriage, 
we have a commitment that's made at a wedding ceremony to always be faithful to each other. But everyone knows that in many cases, circumstances change and people find themselves willing and justified, they suppose, to no longer remain faithful. And so it's easy to say that there's nothing uh, there's nothing capricious about our God. Our God says he is always faithful, that our God can never break God's promises. That's a unique quality. When you read Isaiah 44, you read that only God can save. That means, and again, thinking back to the Exodus and the time with Moses and the Israelites and Egypt, there was a very distinct demonstration of plagues that put God up against those gods of Egypt, and only God could save the people from his wrath. There was only one way that God could deliver the people, and that was because God is the only one who can. Then you read the Gospel of Luke, and you see through God's uh, bringing God's self into our situation through the incarnate nature of Jesus that God really loves us, that God loves us with a love with a love that only God can have, uh, or, or maybe a better way to put it is to say that God is so full of love that God's love super. Uh, supersedes any love, no matter how great, that we can imagine in our humanity. You could even say that God's love is the ultimate expression of love. When you read uh, the various passages, did you begin to get a picture in your mind of a complex person or being in the same way that we are complex. You recognize that, that God, like us, has many qualities and characteristics. God, like us, demonstrates love in a variety of ways. Love that is tough and disciplinary and executed in, only, in a God-like way, in a way that only God could. And then you see that love and tenderness and compassion. And you see a completeness to God that cannot be defined. So how do you give a name to God? How do we name God? That's the big question. Our names sometimes have deep and rich meanings. Some of us have names that are culturally significant and the name has a literal meaning and some of us have names that have family significance because of their ties to our uh, predecessors. Some of us have names that our parents just really liked and thought that it would be fun and wonderful for their child to have that name. But when it comes to naming God, names mean even more. Think about someone you know, perhaps your child, who on their birth you held them in, their ar- in your arms and you looked into their little face and you named them. And then years later, it's inconceivable that they could go by any other name. Their name becomes part of their identity. Their name 
is synonymous with who, what you feel and what you think when you are coming, bringing that name to mind. So you say the name of someone you love, and it creates all sorts of emotional feedback and generates all sorts of memories. And therefore, when we think of naming God, we have to try to understand that we're doing the same thing with someone who is entirely undefinable. Dr. Callis says that all believing requires some faith leap, but believing in God is no more difficult than the hundreds of other faith leaps that life demands. That's kind of powerful. Have you ever gotten into an elevator? Have you given any thought to how it works or whether it will reliably deliver you to your destination? The faith issues, he says, comes when we begin defining the kind of God in whom we believe. If I see God in nature, I may concentrate on botany and have a God who is the source of all that is exquisite and lovely. But if I study the interactions of animal species, all all red in tooth and claw, <laughs> every time I read for you, I always end up stumbling. It's my eyes, folks. I can actually read really well, but my eyes give me fits. I may conclude God is quite brutal, considering the blood and the claws. Or if I think long enough about the complexity of nature, or indeed of my own genetic code, I may decide God is nothing other than the ultimate computer, with no moral or ethical equalities. Indeed, perhaps a computer gone mad. So in faith, human beings have named God. What we consider the most primitive names seem to have sprung from fear and perhaps from greed. These names re represent whatever gods might be as malevolent creatures who must be bought off. They come from a world of threat and terror and ignorance. The lightning bolt, the fire, the storm or locust invasion that might wipe out the crops, all of these made for a deity to be feared and mollified. Such deities appeal to our base emotions. We bargain with them and for them. In the ancient world, if a neighboring tribe defeated us, we concluded theirs was a better god than ours and worshipped it. Such gods ask no ethical comments, uh, commitments of us, and not even much loyalty. There is something of an unspoken understanding that if I find more helpful or more convenient, uh, your God more helpful or more convenient, I have no particular obligation to stay with the one I have. That's really brilliant, Dr. Callis, because it takes you back to the uh, relationship between Israel and Egypt and the relationship between Israel and God. Every time they walked in faith with God out in the wilderness and then their faith broke and they declared they wanted to go back to Egypt, they were doing that, weren't they? Because the gods of Egypt were more convenient and it was easier to find at least one that would agree with you. 
Now, the Bible introduces a different standard entirely. The Bible is demanding and extreme. Where other cultures speak of many gods and many, uh, as many as seem necessary and convenient, the Bible writers say clearly, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. And you shall have no gods before me. This demand is so emphatic that God is described as being jealous. Not in a competitive sense, but God acknowledges through Moses that they made me jealous with what is no God. But for the biblical writers, there is a sense of rightness that God tolerate no nonsense. To contemplate other gods insults the biblical intelligence. The writers perceive an order in the universe that must come from a single source and uh, to allow multiple deities diminish the worshipers from for whom God feels a divine jealousy. So once again, Dr. Callis is saying what I had tried to say to you a couple of weeks ago about God as creator is to say that everything God made with God's own hand and with the majestic genius of God's own mind happened by accident is an insult. And so we want to think of God as being perfectly loving and perfectly just, but does God get offended? I think so. I think there's enough evidence in the Bible that God can be offended. And I think that God is offended when we declare that God isn't the end-all, be-all, creator of all, and the one Lord over all. When we give humanity credit for things that could only have happened with God's help, when we suggest that everything God created was an accident, when we trade off our gods for one that always agrees with us, it's offensive to God. And as we grow in our love relationship with God through heart and mind, it should be kind of insulting to us. Now, I want to take a, a moment and set aside that when we feel that way, we are perfectly justified. But we also have to be cautious not to act in unjust ways or to behave in ways that would cause harm to others. Meaning that when someone who doesn't share your beliefs says hurtful and hateful things about God, it's okay to feel offended and to be offended for God whom you love and honor. But it's not really okay to do harm to others because of that offense. Jesus didn't. And so we have to guard our tongues, guard our hands and our feet from actions that would be would be a form of discredit to God that we're trying to avoid for God's namesake. I mean, think about that. If you're angry because someone has done or said something that you think is an offense to God and you try to bring justice by doing something that will only make people think even less of God, then you've offended God too. The best way to honor God is to do as God has commanded, to be the kind of person that Jesus modeled for us. This is the way, not a way of violence, not a way of hurt 
and harm. Let's talk for a moment about some of the characteristics of God that give us a sense of what we are saying when we say God's name. Now, that's tricky because even as I've spoken of this, I have used the term God pretty frivolously. You know, in Jewish tradition, it is inappropriate to write out the full name of God or to speak the name of God. The best way they feel to reference to God in a reverent and entirely worshipful way is to speak of the name, the name that we don't speak because to speak it diminishes it. I think they might be onto something there. And yet in our contemporary Christian culture, if I didn't explain that every single time that I tried to implement it, people would get confused. And so I've taken the name capital G-O-D and turned it into something that is a word to describe the Father, the Creator, the one whom we worship and adore, the one who loves us and saves us, the Christ who is our Savior and Deliverer, the Holy Spirit who is our life's blood, our spiritual blood. And when we say God, it's almost a generic term. And I believe in most cases when Christians say God, they are saying God in a way that is equivalent to when a Jew writes the words capital G blank D so that they have not completed all the letters. In a way, we've given our use of the word God as a more generic term, and in our own way, we Christians aren't misusing the word God. It's when we really get to the heart and soul of God that we begin to walk on that thin ice where we are blaspheming, where we are sinning against God. You see, God can take a lot of our nonsense But what the Bible says quite plainly to us is that when we begin to question God's character, when we begin to defame God's character in public places, when we turn our backs on God after we have known God in our heart and mind and begun to understand the true character of God, that is when we are really flirting with disaster. God is the one and only holy God. There are no other gods, but if we choose to name other things and treat them like gods, and for our present age and generation, it may not be a series of little statues or big statues and sacrificial practices, but rather it is our credit cards, our TVs, our internet. It is our uh, places where we worship things that seem more important to us to God, like our garage or our garden, or even our church. Yes, my friends, many people worship the things they created to serve God more than the God they wanted to serve. Some people love church more than they love Jesus, and that's really a shame. 
We have false gods nowadays. We have false gods that give us what we want. The gods that we can turn to when we're not getting what we want from the true God, the holy God, the Lord creator, majestic genius God. And therefore, we treat our holy God with an irreverence that is diabolical, that is a twisted game of the devil. What is holiness? Holiness is a word that describes God's purity, God's perfect, sinless, unflawed, untainted nature. God is entirely holy because God is so vastly superior in character to anything that God has created. We think of going into the presence of God as they did in the old days of the Bible where they were in the presence on the mountain or in the tabernacle or in the temple, and we see how dangerous it was for them. And it makes us think that God's holiness is some sort of energy or some sort of of state of being that is intolerable for our bodies, but it's really the other way around. It is our presence in God's holy uh, room, or uh, I didn't say that the way I wanted to. It is in the presence of God's holiness where our sin is utterly and completely exposed, where there's nothing to shield us from God's holy glory. And so when we think of God, uh, the Bible always speaks of terms of brightness, of light, like a brighter-than-lightning kind of light. And I don't know how to translate that into our own uh, world except to say that uh, um, it In my mind, it would be like those people who work on high-tension power lines from a helicopter, okay? Have you ever seen this? It's kind of amazing. There are guys who repair high-tension power lines from a helicopter in the air while the lines are fully charged with hundreds of thousands of volts and hundreds of amps of, of electricity that would just kill you instantly except that if you understand the true nature of electricity, you can see how this person is able to do this, and you find that with the right clothing, with the right technique, and the right safety procedures, this person can walk out of the helicopter and straddle these high-tension power lines and have all of that enormous energy pass through them and not be hurt. It's kind of inconceivable, but it's true. And I'm sure it takes nerves of steel. I'm brave enough to try bungee jumping, but I don't know if I'd be brave enough to try that. So when we think of God's holiness, we have to think of a presence that is so incredibly awesome because of God's character that our flawed state of being, our our sin nature sort of acts as a ground that lets the dangerous energy pass through our bodies in a way that is lethal to us. And so, without our sin washed away and cleared away, we're not properly prepared to be in the presence of God. And Jesus makes the presence possible. Jesus cleanses us of our sin 
and says we are now able to be in the presence of God. We're now properly prepared to experience the fullest extent of God's glory and holiness and not suffer the most dire of consequences. Why? Because God is love. Because this is the essence of God's nature. Last week we asked why God created. And the best answer we could come up with was God creates because God loves to create. Aren't there things that you do simply for the love of doing them? Aren't there things that just give you joy so you do them? For the joy's sake? This is the same with our God. God is so filled with love that God lovingly creates. God lovingly interacts with what God creates. And yet, God is entirely holy and separate from it. It's kind of mind-boggling. When we consider God, we have to consider the attributes of God. And this was another way that the Old Testament writers dealt with it. They didn't know how to explain God other than to assign certain values to God. So they would say the word God or some version of the word God that might be from another language. And then they would say that God is and they would name certain characteristics of God. For example, God is omniscient, meaning that God knows everything, that there is nothing hidden from God. They might say that God is omnipotent, meaning that God is all-powerful and completely in control of everything that is. And then we would say perhaps that God is omnipresent, that, that God is everywhere at all times and at once, meaning that God is with us now as I sit in my basement making a recording and you sit in your car or your airplane <laughs> or perhaps you sit in your, your office or why, uh, like me, maybe you sit and listen to this on your riding mower while you do the mowing. Uh, is a riding your bike. There's a hundred ways that you might listen to this. And even if it comes to you days after I've recorded, I can say with confidence that God is with us because God is omnipresent, that God is with you and me at the same moment, even if this recording is separated from you by days or weeks. And so we rate and name God with the hyphenated uh, qualities that we can add to God's name. So we say omniscient God, omnipresent God. And in the same way, we could say that God is eternal and immutable. That's what we were talking about over the last couple of weeks when I would simply throw the phrase out that God is wholly other entirely apart from what God has created, and yet in a relationship with what God has created. And so, when we name God, we are using a word, a three-letter word, that requires for us a certain understanding of what we say. 
And so when we hear someone in our hearing, someone near us who says some awful word associated with God, and they say it in a way that's offensive to us, but it's not offensive to them, that's all the difference. It's all about what calls to mind when you say the name God. You and I, we believers, we say God, and it means immensely and immeasurably more than we can put into words. I met a man in the nursing home this week who began to speak to me of God, and as he did in these later days of his life, probably closer than I am to meeting God face to face, he said to me, you know, once God really came into my heart, ever since, it seems that I cry more and more when I talk of God. I mean, this man is speaking to me of his deep love and reverence for God so that when he says the three-letter word, G-O-D, it means so much that it stirs him to tears and brings deep emotion. And so, the name God is a name that is only significant in what it calls to mind in our spirits and our hearts and minds. And so that's why naming God is so important in so many ways. Not because we can come up with different names for God, but because we can come up with different expressions for what the name of God calls to mind. Consider these words written by Martin Luther. You've probably heard this. It's a hymn. And this is how he tried to describe the God that he knew with the depth of emotion that he had. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal." Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So what is Martin Luther feeling when he thinks of God? He's expressed it beautifully in his wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. John Wesley, the founder of my United Methodist tradition, that Wesleyan way of looking at things, he says, there are three that bear record in heaven. And these three are one, 
I believe this fact also, if I may use the expression, that God is three and one, but the manner how I do not comprehend, and I do not believe it. Now in this, in the manner lies the mystery, and so it may, I have no concern with it. It is no object of my faith. I believe just so much as God has revealed and no more. But this, the manner, he has not revealed. Therefore, I believe nothing about it. But would it not be absurd in me to deny the fact because I do not understand the manner? That is, to reject what God has revealed because I do not comprehend what he has not revealed. This is a point much to be observed. There are many things which I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive. Part of these God hath revealed to us by his Spirit, revealed, that is, unveiled, uncovered. That part he requires us to believe. Part of them he has not revealed, that we need not, and indeed cannot believe it is for far above, out of our sight. And so Wesley, being the excruciatingly detailed intellectual that he was, couldn't think of God without trying to wrap his mind around a concept that he knew better than to try to wrap his mind around. And that was Wesley. That probably describes some of us. We think of God and we try to understand the things that God says and does. And some of us think of God and we try to picture God. We try to imagine God's true nature, that holy, unbearable being that we can't face without the covering of Christ for our sin. Or we're like Wesley and we're just really trying to understand the things of God as we say God's name, that we cannot speak God as a name without immediately calling to mind all these weird and mysterious things that we're not able to understand. And here's what I'm really certain of, my friends. It's okay. It's really okay. Because God loves you. God will meet you where you are. We know this because Jesus did it countless times as God in the flesh. The Holy Spirit does it even greater than Jesus could because by the Spirit we have that very heart of God in us, through us, around us, with all of us at the same time, everywhere. And this is God, a God who is gracious and willing to give all that God can to have us in a relationship with God for love's sake. So, what's stopping you from letting the name of God become a trigger for a deep love and affection, a giving over of your heart and mind to the heart and mind of the one who made you and sustains you and desires to be with you through all time? Well, we've come to the conclusion of our study for today, and uh, what we've learned is, is that a person who has faith in God 
can know God by name and call God's name with awe and intimacy and in the humility of knowing that the name means so much more than we could even wrap our minds around. We conclude the study by praying the prayer that uh, Daniel ben Judah wrote in 1400. The God of Abraham prays, all praised he be his name, who was and is and is to be always the same, the one eternal God whose timelessness is clear, the first, the last, beyond all thought throughout the year. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed and benefited from this week's study, and I pray that you will continue to join us each week. This is a virtual church classroom, but it should not replace a literal church classroom or worship space. It should not replace the, play, the fellowship of believers. It should not replace the interaction that you have with other believers. Many, many times God reveals truth about God's nature through the voices of others as we gather together to hear the Word of God and to talk about God and to pray and be with God as we are with each other. God in the Trinity is a community, and God loves community. And so I believe with all my heart that if this is the only thing you're doing to experience a little time with God's Word, that you will suffer for the lack of community. Be a part of a church. If you're anywhere close enough to Jasper, Indiana, that you could come and join us at Shiloh, we'd so like to have you. You can learn everything you need to know about being with us by going to shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot O-R-G. If you're listening from further away, I'm glad you're tuned in, and I'm honored that you consider this part of your uh, weekly uh, worship rituals and routines, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the trust that you've placed in me. But do go and be a part of a religious community, a spiritual family somewhere near you, and I'll grant you that some are better than others and that some just don't fit your personality, but God has a place for you. And if you will in faith begin to seek that place, God will lead you to it and you will know. And don't forget, I love to hear from you. Feel free to talk to me at church about this podcast if you're one of those folks. And if you're from further away, drop us a line. You can get my email address at that website, shilohumc.org, or you can comment using the uh, podcasting program of your choice. Thank you again for being here. I will post next week's scripture readings in the description box, and you can pick them up there. Until next time, God bless you, and goodbye.